Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Christian Studies. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today I'm very excited to be joined by the Reverend Dr. Glenn Packiam, here to talk about his new book, Worship and the World to Come, Exploring Christian Hope in Contemporary Worship, just published last summer of 2020 by IVP Academic. This marvelously succinct and research-packed study explores how contemporary worship encodes and informs the Christian experience of eschatological hope. Combining sharp theory with theological and ethnographic fieldwork and analysis, this book is a valuable model of how to do practical theology just as much as for the perceptive conclusions. Glenn, it's so great to have you. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Ryan. It's great to be on the show, and thanks for the kind introduction. Oh, you're very welcome. Well, before we dive into Worship in the World to Come, would you share a little quick overview of your career and, and how you came to work on this project? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm from Malaysia originally, and um, at an early age, kind of, you know, we were going to church, and I, I fell in love with the musical part of it. But at 10 years old, we moved from Malaysia to America. We lived in Portland, Oregon, in the Northwest uh, part of the country. And um, uh, we attended a church that had a, a really vibrant worship ministry. In hindsight, I've discovered that worship, contemporary worship historians like Lester Ruth and others have identified that church, uh, City Bible Church, was, Bible Temple was what it was called then, Mana Church now, was fairly pivotal in the kind of latter rain um, stream of contemporary worship. I didn't realize it, but I, but it makes sense why I was so inspired by by worship music in those years. We moved back to Malaysia, and I started to get involved in leading worship at our church, our youth ministry. So when I moved to the States to go to college, I knew uh, my two loves were theology and worship. And so I studied theological historical studies, but I got involved with the chapel praise and worship team at uh, um, uh, the university I was attending, Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And and uh, and then from there, made some great friends, great connections, and that led me to a church in Colorado Springs where I am now and have been for over 20 years, uh, a church called New Life Church. And I began here as, a, well, the first year as a sort of intern or apprentice in the worship department and uh, was, you know, shadowed the worship pastor wherever he went. I, I went, I was playing at funerals and weddings and services and all that. And then they turned that into a full-time job. We ended up starting a school of worship that I was tasked with leading and directing. And so we kind of fused leadership lessons and and theology and and biblical studies with musical um, competencies that made up part of our school of worship. Uh, About 11 years ago or so, I began to make the transition from um, musical worship leadership to uh, a different kind of pastoral leadership. I was preaching and teaching more. We started a a service at the church. Eventually, that led to our church developing kind of a multi-congregational model where we have live live preaching at at these seven different congregations, and I lead one of them and help oversee the other congregations. Somewhere along the way, I decided to return to kind of theological education 
um, did, did, did some grad work at Fuller Seminary, had a master's already in management, and then went on to, to Durham University. And so for me, when it, when it came time to choosing the topic, I wanted to choose uh, a, a field or an arena that I knew really well, which was the contemporary worship uh, field, but an angle of theology that I had become very passionate about, which was hope, uh, theology of hope and eschatology, mm-hmm. and had discovered in, in, in the course of pastoral work how critical that and maybe neglected that that angle, uh, that aspect of theology had been. And so putting the two together uh, shaped some of my uh, research interests. That's fantastic. Let's talk a little bit about the the audience that you had in mind as you were preparing this study. So this flowed out of your doctoral research, but who who are you writing this book for? And and maybe who who are some audience members that uh, you would hope would would really find this book helpful? Yeah, it's a good question because I think what, what my hope was really that for pastors and worship leaders and worship pastors um, to be able to find something in the book that would be both encouraging and challenging that would help us take an honest look at at the work that we're doing and and to find areas of improvement. So that would be the primary audience is is the practitioner, the person in in church uh, making these decisions. And then I I, I do think my my hope was. Uh, for people in uh, graduate education seminaries uh, to be able to say let's let's take a different approach to practical theology sometimes practical theology um, is really interpreted as applied theology so we get systematics and biblical theology and all of that to give us the what and then we just sort of distill it downwards to to the how and I am hoping to be part of a uh, a, a push that's happening from a number of different people to say actually, Practical theology should blend situational analysis with theological reflection. And many of the people writing about contemporary worship specifically are offering theological reflection, but very poor uh, situational analysis. And so it results kind of in some hot takes or or cheap shots even uh, Mm -hmm. at, at worship music that's being done in the church. And I feel for the practitioners who are just trying to do their best or just trying to sort of, uh, you know, get another Sunday under, under their belt and uh, so, so again, I, I think if we could bridge that gap between church and academy, that would be another hope, a secondary hope, perhaps for the book. That's it's really great, Glenn. And really, this this impetus that you're describing just now makes up a lot of what you're doing in part one. So you talk about the relationship between theory and practice, um, and different ways of looking at that, and then and then maybe some different ways that the Academy tends to look at contemporary Christian worship music. So, so maybe expand a little bit more on, on some of the, the different options that were available to you and why you chose what you did. Yeah. So I've, I, this is a, a terrible generalization, but I do think in, in a lot of um, American evangelical settings, seminaries and all of that, um, when, if you were to take a class on, on worship, it's, it's mostly, um, prescriptive. So this is what yeah. we've developed from the Bible and from church history, and therefore this is what you should do. That, that's not wrong. That's certainly very, very helpful. And certainly there are biblical principles and there's important things that we've gained from church tradition. Um, but I think it, it, it doesn't really take seriously the Holy Spirit at work in the church today. And so it's also helpful to, to begin with the other side of it and to say, okay, what's actually going on? Let's get an accurate snapshot of what's happening in our churches and the validity or, or uh, maybe poor quality or the gaps in our current practices. And then let's ref- work backwards and to say, so what's missing and how do we reflect theologically on that? 
Uh, and, and, and at least for the goal of compl- uh, complexifying the picture, giving us a, a picture with greater nuance and greater complexity. So that that's sort of one goal. And then kind of a step toward that that the, the book deals with is to say um, congregational worship really operates from a few different paradigms. And and I think it's important to name those paradigms before we even start being prescriptive with our um, with our advice or with our instruction. So, for example, in the book, I propose you know just sort of a framework that that just a, a, a quick survey of the literature that's out there, particularly in America, is to say that we approach congregational worship from from a few very different paradigms. One paradigm is that the purpose of congregational worship is formation, that we're there to kind of um, make disciples. And so therefore, if that's what you believe is your premise, then everything gets evaluated through the lens of how good are the lyrics, how many themes are we singing about, and and how rich are these practices, and how Christocentric, and all of those very, very important questions. But the other lens, and then that, that, that uh, paradigm tends to emerge from uh, the Reformed circles, uh, whether that be Anglicanism or Presbyterians or even Reformed Baptists, you, you start to sort of see this concern with discipleship and formation, and rightly so. Uh, there's also the paradigm that kind of uh, maybe springs from older evangelical roots. You mentioned um, Melanie Ross in one of our conversations, Ryan. You know, she does a lot of stuff talking about Finney's new methods in the Second Great Awakening and how that was in a way, responsible or to blame, depending on your view, uh, for, for some of the, the ways that we think about congregational worship. And that's the paradigm of mission, where the reason the church gathers is to reach the lost. And you see some some major kind of extreme versions of that with uh, maybe the seeker movement uh, and things like that, where everything about the service is just about the seeker and the, per- the, the, the unbeliever uh, that's in our midst. So that's the mission paradigm. And then thirdly, you, you know, because of the Pentecostal movement, maybe even the charismatic renewal, you have a third paradigm of, of encounter where we're gathering in church to, to encounter God and to, to have an experience with God. And so that's an example of if we don't have a thick situational analysis, we won't even begin to ask what are our mm. subconscious paradigms for approaching congregational worship. So a person might come in and say, well, this is the biblical way, and therefore this is what we should do, instead of saying, well, hang on, in the tradition that you're operating within, this non-denominational church or whatever, uh, that, that's, that's using songs from Hillsong or, or you know, Bethel or wherever, Passion, and they're expecting to meet with God, not to learn three new attributes about God in the first three songs, you yeah. know? <laughs> uh, I've, I've been in that conversation before. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's great, Glenn. So, so in part one, you kind of you set the stage. Now, part two, you're going to start really sharpening your your conceptual tool, and so you you're tackling this idea of hope. And so, you have to answer what is hope, and how has it been understood historically, and and in kind of contemporary theological understanding. So, so what is hope? And, and what's the, the kind of history of hope as a concept in five minutes or less? <laughs> I know. I mean, it's just so massive, isn't it? And I there there's a chapter that explores kind of the non-theological models of hope. And so you, the most useful one, of, well, one of the more useful ones for my work was 
the cognitive model of hope, which from a cognitive psychology standpoint, hope is the intersection of agency and pathway. Mm-hmm. And, and a guy named Charles Snyder developed that model. But, the, the, you know, the basic idea there is hope arises when you have a sense of willpower. I can do this and a sense of way power. The path is, is, is clear for you. Um, so power and path, maybe, or power and plan. And certainly that plays out on a human level. When we think about communities that are uh, communities that are filled with despair, we say, well, that's because those are communities maybe of poverty that, that even if they wanted to break the cycle, they can't, there is no path out. Um, and, and so that you, you can see how that works. And there was also kind of the the uh, affective or kind of emotional model of hope, where hope uh, has an affective quality to it. It, it feels like optimism. It feels like a positive um, uh, look. But but as a Christian, those are inadequate because those you yeah. could kind of trick yourself. You could have mind over matter. You could believe that you've got the power and the path, but not actually have the power or, or the path. And so we had to turn very quickly in the book to theological models of hope. And there we do go to early Christian uh, conceptions of eschatology. And while there's some you know, some um, shades of disagreement in, in early Christian conceptions of, of, of hope or the end of it all. There is some wide agreement on on two things or a few things. Jesus is coming back uh, to judge the living and the dead. There will be a judgment. There's a retribution. So there's a return. There's a retribution. And there's resurrection. That's the preacher in me trying to make an alliteration here. And that's <laughs> definitely, you know, uh, historians of the early church will quibble with that oversimplification. But that that is essentially the core of it. There's a return. There's a kind of retribution and reward, and there's there's resurrection. Hmm. Um, and then as we move toward contemporary theologians of of hope, I used Jurgen Moltmann and N. T. Wright um, to talk about their overlapping visions. One as a systematic guy, Moltmann, and one as a biblical studies slash historian, Pauline uh, scholar in in Wright. And showing six ways that their uh, their visions of hope overlap. Of course, some notable differences. But I'm trying to distill all the way, click the lens into focus. You know, with with each each um, each model here to finally at the end say what we're looking for is a kind of Christian hope that is grounded on the resurrection of Christ, uh, and that is focused on what God will bring about at the very end of it all. And it, it you know. A simple way that the last line of the Nicene Creed, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. So he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. But then at the very end, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. So if I was if I was speaking with a person in the coffee shop, I'd say Christian hope is resurrection. It's God bringing about new life, uh, which is on one hand, a co- perfection and completion of the original creation, but God bringing it about after all possibilities have ended, after death itself has has occurred. And so uh, this is more than mind tricks. This is more than good feelings. Uh, this is something only God can do and that God will do because he's already done it for Christ. That's great. And, and one of the things that you're noticing in this this you could call it the ivory tower version of hope is, is there's a lot of emphasis right on, on um, material physical resurrection that's coming. And so then it's almost as though from part two to part three, you step out of the library and you take the show on the road. So now you're going out into churches doing field work. And the first thing you have to, to ask in, in chapter six, which I think you call, is it hope? 
espoused. Um, what are what are the folk understandings, or, or how is this idea of hope now being understood on the ground, out out of the ivory tower and on yes. the ground? Yeah, that's exactly right, Ryan. I like that image, taking the show on the road, stepping out of the library. And it's discouraging because you see folk versions, even folk, quote unquote, Christian versions of hope uh, that are very disembodied. So they're not um, m- material. Um, they're all about uh, when I fly away, go to heaven when I die one day, you know, we'll be up there. And then and then secondly, th- so they're very escapist. They're very disembodied. But they're also they're also in a sense, disconnected from the creation story or the salvation story. So Mm -hmm. it's almost like we're continuing on this plane of history. And then all of a sudden it has this explosive end uh, and God, and we get out of here. God takes us out of here. Um, So when I, when I, when I've thought about how to evaluate it, I, some I've used kind of three criteria, space, time, and agency. Um, space, where is this occurring? And then time, when? And then agency, who is going to bring it about? And in folk visions of hope, the space is very clearly, it's up there. We're going up there somewhere. And then the time is, well, the time when when the end comes and, and there's various sort of end times things and rapture, uh, notions of a rapture and all of that. And then agency is, is, is very much God. So they're clear about that. There's no illusions, at least among evangelical circles, that we can bring this about. I think you. I think if you did, a, if I had done a corollary with um, liberal or, or progressive um, streams of Christianity, maybe you, you would mm-hmm. see more of that. We can bring the kingdom here, kind of stuff. But my focus was with evangelicals, and so evangelical folk visions of hope uh, were, def- were definitely theocentric, um, but not not Christ-centered. Meaning, if you really reflected on Jesus and the physicality of his resurrection, you would not arrive a rapture oriented escapist version of the future. Yeah, that's so that's so right. And then in chapter 7, this is real this is the money chapter. This is the real grist of your original research. You you look at how this concept of hope is being encoded in the 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 lyrics of worship songs across um a spectrum of evangelicalism. So this is where you conducted a significant amount of original research. Tell us um, what it was that you were you were looking for, and what did you find? Yeah, yeah. So gratefully, because of my um, relationship with Integrity Music as a songwriter, and 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 you know, having made records with them and all of that, they were wonderful to partner with, and they were you know they were keen to discover too. You know what what's out there? What are our songs like and all that? So, but instead of exploring their catalog, which is one approach I could have done, because right. uh, that would be limited then to one music publisher. Uh, and instead of an, you know, another method would have been to explore CCLI, uh, which is a list of, you know, songs that are most sung and all of that. The, so the limitations of just exploring Integrity's catalog is one publisher. The limitations of going with CCLI is you're exploring songs that are popular, which is sometimes the result of, or often the result of market forces and right. and the the machine, the industry of of radio and all of that, and it doesn't necessarily put us in touch with the average worship leader in a local church. So, Integrity gave me access to their email list of twenty at the time twenty five thousand worship leaders, wow. and I created a twenty five question survey that got 
basically about a thousand responses. So not all 25,000, but still a thousand responses is fantastic. Yeah. And you know, the, the, the demographic sketch of these worship leaders, these are not, um, big church mega, you know, these are not sort of the, the celebrity names or whatever. These are worship leaders. The average ones working part-time sourcing songs on YouTube. Uh, you, you know, they're not, uh, so one of the questions I asked them was name a song that has brought you hope in a time of despair. And then I also asked name a song that you sing at church that has brought your church hope. And I cross-referenced the answers to both of those questions, you know, as a way of sort of checking the personal response with the congregational response, um, filtered out songs that had been mentioned, you know, more than a couple times, and then kind of aggregated those the, the the responses to those two questions and and created a list identified a list of of nine or ten songs and and then began to evaluate those songs by space time and agency so yeah. um for space I, I looked at imagery what's the imagery about earth what's the imagery about heaven and i don't know how deep in, into this you want to go ryan but so i'll just leave it that and then you can follow up if you want but and and then i analyze verbs to talk about time are these verbs past tense present tense future tense uh, and then, and then for agency, I studied the nouns and the pronouns in those songs. Who who are we singing about more? And whose action? Who's the agent of this action? And uh, had some interesting discoveries. <laughs> That's great. Um, if you could maybe give us some some of the generalized um, dis- distinctions that you observed. So there were some differences based on which particular groups of Christians that you were. Um, you were analyzing, um, of course we can, you know, we want people to go get the book to get the full, uh, the full breakdown, but what, what are some of the the interesting things that you observed about how hope is encoded differently in different, uh, Christian traditions? Yeah. So I, I took that sort of the general responses and then I filtered out by a couple of denominational clusters because I, I then went on and did field work with two churches, one Presbyterian and one, uh, charismatic. And so I did, um, or non-denominational charismatic. And so I, I did filter out the responses by Presbyterians and then also by Assemblies of God and Vineyard, which were, you know, obviously sort of Pentecostal charismatic um, streams. And and then compare general responses, Presbyterian responses, you know, the songs that showed up in, in each of those responses. And one of the things that's across the board is we we all of our pronouns for ourselves tend to be singular i me and my which again i i don't think that's automatically problematic the psalms are full of that the magnificat is full of that so i'm not automatically you know, you know alarmed by that but it is it does raise a question about that um on the on the verb side i i found that that charismatics disproportionately compared to say the presbyterians or compared to the larger group uh, as a whole, sing more about the present tense, sing about God's uh, action and our action in, in the present tense. And so there's something there to say, um, are we are we forgetting, um, you know, the, the, the anchor here of the past and, and even the kind of the future orientedness of it? So um, across the board, there was not a, 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 an even focus on the future, which maybe it doesn't need to be even, but it does seem to be. I mean, I have to sort of say, I think there's a disproportionate focus on the present tense, particularly among um, the charismatic sort of songs. Yeah, that was, that was so interesting. Now, when you move into chapter 
chapter eight, which is hope experienced, you did something that I thought was really original and something that I have been waiting for someone to maybe do more in the literature on contemporary worship. And and you acknowledge that it's not sufficient to analyze lyrics as this kind of disembodied uh, reality, because that's not that's not how they're experienced by the church. But in order to really complete the picture of how is hope being understood and ex- encoded and experienced in the local church, you have to move from the worship lyrics to to their actual lived out nature in the corporate worship gathering. Tell us a little bit about how you um, saw that filling out the picture a little bit more. Early on in my time at Durham, one of my supervisors, who is a sociologist of religion, introduced me to literature on ritual studies. And that was a game changer for me, Ryan, because I began to realize that even from an anthropological, sociological perspective, the text of a ritual is not the same thing as the performance of a ritual. And we know this. I mean, there, take a Pledge of Allegiance. You know, we're recording this on Inauguration Day. Uh, or or, or take wedding vows for any listener out there who's married. The, the text might be identical, but the performance of it is certainly not the same. Um, and and that's the, the, the same is true for, for worship songs. So analyzing lyrics are not nearly enough. We have to see what happens to these lyrics when people are, quote unquote, performing them, when they're saying them. So I did, you know, two uh, field uh, field work with two churches and had lengthy times not not only observing the services but also uh, meeting with focus these focus groups and uh, and talking with them about their experience of worship. And one of the things that's interesting is so not only is uh, let's take a song, you know, uh, "Great Are You Lord." Not only is a song. Um, experienced differently in different church contexts. You know, one might be with boom, you know, full band and, and lights and, you know, all this stuff. And the other might be an acoustic un- unplugged version of it. And so it's going to generate those, those um, sonic and aesthetic sense setting uh, settings actually influence our e- emotional experience um, of it. So one service was candles and in an evening, the other services in the, more, uh, you know, Actually, both the other service is also in the evening, but but big room and and big lights and big energy. So one focus group talked about the energy that comes every time they go to church. The other group talked about the silence and the and and the and the the, the contemplative kind of nature of it. So they might have even been singing uh, the same songs or at least similar enough songs. But the aesthetic settings impacted it. Uh, the stories that they were bringing to the service uh, affect that. Um, one person's wrestling with a medical thing. Another person's wrestling with estranged relationships with their adult children. You know, So, so we have internal discourses and, and internal situations that are affecting our experience of the song. And then we have contextual dynamics that are affecting our experience of the song. So it's very complex. And the, 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 the most I could do was try to name some of those complexities and then try to compare and contrast the two settings in the Presbyterian church and in the non-denominational church. That's great, Glenn. When, when you, um, we, we talked about how, so you had the ivory tower version, if, if, if I can be <laughs> summarize it that way of, of hope as this material thing that's far off. And then you, we've seen ways in which, as you're doing this research on the field, you're seeing that sometimes hope tends to be, uh, it's not material and far off, but it's now and it's spiritual. Again, these are some generalizations, but then in the conclusion, you, you try to wrestle with this disconnect 
and you provide this fascinating answer, and that's the Holy Spirit, um, is the way that you're you're seeing that there's uh, you have the theory, you have the practice, and the Holy Spirit is one of the ways that you're kind of finding some harmony between the two. So, so tell us a little bit about the that conclusion that you came to, and and what that uh, what that tells you tells us about hope in in the church right now and maybe some steps forward the 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 x factor in religious experience for christians is pneumatology is 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 so for for academics it's not enough to do ethnomusicology and and sort of ritual studies and it's also not enough to do biblical theology of worship there is this bridge between what we think it should be and then what it actually is and that is this this um, a, a proper attentiveness to the Holy Spirit. But having said that, there's still this work to say, well, how do we identify the work of the, of the Spirit? So in my in my focus group, what I discovered was from both churches, people were experiencing hope pretty consistently as they came to worship. And they experienced a kind of hope that was resilient, meaning they'd leave home and they'd be down from the emotional high, but they would open their Bibles and begin to read, or they would uh, pray with a friend, or they would uh, listen to worship music again, and they would be carried uh, through the difficulty that they were experiencing. And these are people, people in my focus group that were genuinely were dealing with different things, a, a breakup, a medical diagnosis, uh, you know. Um, so they weren't, these weren't people that were just on top of the world and therefore, quote unquote, were hopeful. So it was, uh, the experience of hope was consistent and resilient. And then, and then thirdly, it was kind of variant. I mean, it was, it was, it was different in the way that, that it was experienced. So I've alluded to this in the charismatic setting, you know, energy in the room, um, all of that. And then the Presbyterian setting, the casserole, the prayer moment, the fellowship time, you know, so Part of my my attempt to bridge it theologically is to say, when you think about the Holy Spirit, we need to say at least three things with with regard to hope. And the first is that the Holy Spirit is God's eschatological presence. Uh, right. Paul, you know, Paul says he's the down payment of our future in, inheritance, and so the Spirit is our our foretaste now of what we're going to experience then. And if, as you know, Moltmann, when he writes about the future, says, God, you know, uses that verse from 1 Corinthians 15, God will be all in all. And so there's a sense in which the Shekinah, the glory, fills the temple of, of, a, of a renewed creation. Well, that's the very presence of God. And that's what, the, that's what Christians experience when we come in worship. Whether the songs are all that great or not, there is sort of this promise that the Spirit will communicate to us this, this experience of God's presence and therefore a foretaste. Uh, but secondly, the Spirit is God's powerful and empowering presence. And that's important because of what I said earlier with Charles Snyder's model of hope as agency and pathway. Christians don't have to feel like they personally within themselves have the power and therefore I have hope. Christians just need to trust in the all-powerful God. So take, for example, one of the songs that did show up on the list, A Great Are You, Lord. Um, it's your breath in our lungs and we you know, pour out our praise and you know all of this stuff. It, it, it's not a song that sings about the future, except for the very the bridge. You know, all the earth will will shout your praise. But generally, you wouldn't say there's, there's nothing in there about resurrection. There's nothing in there about the eschaton. You know, this is not a song of hope. And yet, it it was a song that was named repeatedly by worship leaders as a song of hope. Why? Because every time we sing, "Great are you, Lord," 
we're transferring agency upward. We're kind of reminding ourselves that I don't have the power. I am not great, but he is great. And he's got the power. And I don't know the way. And I don't have the path, but he is the the way maker, the one who can who can make a way where there is no way. And so you, you begin to have a thicker analysis of these songs to say any worship song that exalts God has the ability to produce hope because it reminds us that the spirit among us is God's powerful and empowering um, presence. And, and, and then thirdly, that the spirit is a, it, God's uh, sacramental presence, maybe. Uh, it, it, the spirit has a way of taking our physiology, our brain chemistry, the oxytocin chemicals that are released when we sing, uh, the emotions, the lights, the, the, the environment, the candles. He can work with all of that to convey the presence of God. And that's important because then we don't lock the experience of God's presence with a particular kind of expression or tradition. Excellent. Now, you you conclude with some 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 calls or some exhortations to to preachers and to worship leaders um, kind of emerging out of this study. I'll share a little bit about what you think might be some some lessons learned. It's unfair to put all of the weight on worship leaders and songwriters, and so I, I, I begin by kind of talking about the service shape. And so for anyone involved in the design of a worship service, and this is why, again, I, my, my primary audience of the book is practitioners, pastors, worship leaders, worship pastors, because you, you, we can shape a service that, um, that takes people on a journey, that has a bit of a narrative to it. So the songs, we don't have to put all of the weight on the songs or even all the weight on a sermon. And so uh, the, the shape of a service, and this is where we can learn from historic Christian liturgies. Uh, the goal is not to just, you know, copy and paste into, you know, let's all just use the same liturgy from, you know, the 1500s or whatever. No, the goal is to say, how can we learn from the logic of the liturgy? And the logic of, of many of these uh, historic liturgies was that there's a movement to it, this gathering of the people of God, the proclamation of gospel and, and word, and, and the invitation to the table, and then this, you know, sending back out into the world. How can we learn from that? And how does that even sort of rehearse the big gospel story? And then secondly, an exhortation to preachers to preach with with the story in mind. I, I think it's too easy in our postmodern sort of world to drop people into one topic and then kind of let them go uh, instead of doing what the scripture does. The scripture, it's very difficult to um, <laughs> to turn scriptures into inspirational quotes. I mean, Lord knows we've tried, but, but there's just, <laughs> it, it is resistant to that. It requires us to locate ourselves in this in salvation history. And so I think as preachers we can do a better job of locating our text for the week in the great salvation story, a redemptive history. And then finally to songwriters and worship leaders, you know, let theology be a door and not just a fence. And what I mean by that is uh, a fence keeps us in bounds. Theology certainly functions that way. But a door can open us up to new rooms in the house. You know, uh, it, it could be like the wardrobe door in Narnia. You know, it, it can it, we can we can open up Augustine's Confessions and say, my goodness, why have we not sung some of these phrases? Or we can open up the Book of Common Prayer and read the collects for Advent or for Lent and to say, dear Lord, th th this should inspire, this should provoke my creativity rather than so many uh, contemporary songwriters we start with what's in my heart and then check to see if it's in bounds and, and i would just challenge artists um and, and to to say 
let's, what if we begin the other way around? What if we pull some dusty books out of the treasure chest of the church and say, gosh, this could open up new worlds to us. And that, and, and I think, you know, the, the lines in the creed that I alluded to, those are lines that need to be sung. Um, but we wouldn't, we wouldn't just sit down with our guitars and say, man, I was thinking the other day about, you know, this is, it's not going to pop up in our heads. We have to kind of go treasure hunt a bit for these lines. Mm. It's a good word. Well, Glenn, you've been so generous with your time today. Before we say goodbye, if anyone has been listening to this and they've had their curiosity prompted, where are some some ways that they could find out more and and what could they maybe be looking forward to coming out in the future um, to con- continue this exploration? Well, you've been so kind, Ryan, to, to pay so much attention to worship in the world to come. And of course, if readers are intrigued by it, they can pick that up wherever books are sold. Sometimes IVP has the better deals on their website itself, um, particularly if, if you know schools are buying them in bulk or teams are buying them in bulk, whatever. Uh, my website, glennpackiam.com, G-L-E-N-N-P-A-C-K-I-A-M, is a great place uh, to follow. I- I'm working on a project now for pastors. It's not an academic book, but it will use some of the instincts that I've talked about with practical theology. It's a book that hopes to combine some situational analysis of the challenges that are facing pastors today with some theological reflection, wisdom from church history and all of that. It's a book that will be done in partnership with Barna, and and we don't have a good title for it yet, but it'll release in 2022. That's great. I can't wait to to see more about that project as it develops. Well, we've been talking to Glenn Packiam about his new book, Worship in the World to Come, Exploring Christian Hope and Contemporary Worship, available from IVP Academic. Thanks so much for joining us, Glenn. Thank you, Ryan. And thank you for listening to the New Books Network. Rate, comment, like, and subscribe to our podcast. And, and I invite you to think about one friend who might enjoy this interview and send them the recommendation. Visit newbooksnetwork.com to learn more and find other great interviews. That's it for now. I hope you have a great day.